podcast that keeps you in the loop on all things pop culture so you can talk about it with your friends. I'm Courtney. I'm Shannon. I'm Andrew. And we are here this week to talk about mummies. <laughs> so spooky. It's not actually spooky. I mean, I You don't say know. that, but you just explained what mummies were to our son and you freaked him out. <laughs> I, had to, I mean, they were kind of appropriated as a spooky thing. Yeah. I had to, I had to like stare at you. You're like, because he's like, mummies aren't real, right? And you were like, and I was, I was like, we don't really do that anymore. And you were like, well, and I was like, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> like it known for the record that there was a guy who was like mummified in 2009 for a documentary what's so that, that weird about aside from like people coming back to life though what's that weird about it I mean I kind of think burying yeah. dead people in the ground is a little bit weird too I honestly don't know. so get, this isn't that much into space. to be honest like <laughs> I want to be cremated so uh, I I want to just be buried as I am I don't want to be embalmed because embalming is very similar to mummification but the, we're going to yeah. talk about this <laughs> We're getting ahead of ourselves. Getting ahead of ourselves. Wow, we just can't wait to talk about being dead. And being wrapped up. Hey, listen, it's Halloween. Buried alive. It's Halloween, and if we can't talk about being dead now, when and, can and, we? And we're millennials. The one thing that connects us is our like enjoyment of being dead at some point. Like, the sweet release enjoy- of death is coming at some point. Oh not God. enjoyment of death. Like, I guess that's true. It's you the, feel like death is looming over you at every No, it's moment. the sweet release of death. That's, that's oh. what it, that, that's okay. what it is. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Basically summing up our existential dread. But anyway. <laughs> but hey, pogs are back. So. So life yeah. isn't too bad. Speaking of pogs, let's talk about media of the week. Is that your media of the week, pogs? No. I don't even know if pogs are back. It's just it's the first thing that popped into my head. Nice. I don't think we need pogs back. <laughs> um, Andrew, tell us about what you've been reading or watching or listening to or playing lately. I added one. <laughs> I just... Oh, yeah. So, uh, next week we're headed out of town. Um, we're going to Cleveland to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, among other places. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, as a part of that, I went through all the 221 Ro- uh, Hall of Fame acts in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and mm-hmm. put at least one song from each of them on a playlist on Spotify. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, the whole thing, top to bottom, is the best rock and roll has to offer. Yep. And she also Def Leppard. me. I love Def <laughs> They perform with Taylor oh, Swift once and I was into Ooh. it. Oh, uh, and also Journey's on there too. Hey, so. shut up. Journey's great. <laughs> so also, also, also I, another good one. I've taken issue with his playlist because he limited himself to three songs per artist in most cases. What did he put, What did he leave out? I put four Otis Redding songs on there by mistake. Oh, but yeah. Otis Redding is so good. Otis Redding is great. He can't but limit like, three. But his choice of like the three songs that he picked for some of these artists, I was just like, what? Excuse me. <laughs> what? Like what? Uh, I mean, like, <laughs> I don't know. I would like I, to defend myself. For, for the Beatles, for instance. Uh-oh. The, okay, it's hard with the Beatles. It's, yeah. I, you the, know what? Come at me with those. You know what? Come at Here's me. What did you put? The three, thong, the three songs that he put were great. They're great Beatles songs. He put Let It Be, Hey Jude, and Yesterday. Right? Tell me where I'm I mean, those are kind of Here's, here's my thing. Beatles here's songs. my thing, though. Is Let It Be and Hey Jude, like... 
for the Beatles, they're very they're kind of similar esque. Yes. So I feel like if you're going to have if you're going to limit it to three songs, and you're going to try to pick three songs that represent the Beatles and the breadth Shouldn't and scope I of the Beatles, I want to hold your hand, be right? With them? Okay. Or like Party's <laughs> Night or something. From That's not the show. I'm to put I am the Walrus on here. I, I will go. Up. I am done with this right now. I'm I am shutting it down. Man. I was no. saying I was you saying yesterday for sure. Either Hey Jude or Let It Be, and then an early Beatles song like. Hard yeah. Day's Night, or I Want to Hold Your Hand, yeah. or Love Me Do, something like that. I mean, those, those, I want to hold your hand. See, Shannon the reason they're popular in well, yeah. America. <laughs> he also, well, yeah. he also for the Beach Boys, he didn't put God Only Knows, which is by far the best. You haven't watched Love Actually enough times in your life. That's true. I've, well, actually, I've watched it the exact appropriate amount of time, which is zero. Which so. is 50 times. 50 times. I've watched, right watched it the right amount of times, which is none. Um, yeah. Uh... No, look, I was what I, I was going for mostly with the top five songs streamed on Spotify. That's what I was choosing from, and for the, I don't even think "I Want to Hold Your Hand" was in the top five for the Beatles. Like there were so many songs that you could have chosen. Like I had to limit myself to three for Elvis. Okay, as but well. somebody somebody as musically like knowledgeable as you. You should have known. Was in the ghetto one of the. You. No, one of the, yeah. I love I love, <laughs> in the I love in the ghetto. Love in the ghetto, but it was not on there. The three I put on for Elvis were. Um, can't help falling in love. Okay, yeah. Um, suspicious minds and Jailhouse. Hound Dog. Okay. No, I no, feel no. like that's okay. No, no, yeah. it was Jailhouse Rock. I don't think it was Hound Dog. There was another artist who recorded Those Hound Dog. Oh, that's right. right, yeah. And I put the original Hound Dog artist on there. Yeah, so Hound Dog is on there, but it's not Elvis's. I think we need a whole podcast arguing about this. I think Blue Suede Shoes is on there by another artist too. Yes. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Moving yes, on, Shannon. Uh, <laughs> look, I just want to say, it was really hard, okay? Especially since I had to put Journey on the playlist. Like, I would have put more Elvis and more Beatles on there if I didn't have to also make space for those guys. And Bon Jovi, too. <laughs> Listen, it's not like Spotify limits the number of tracks on your playlist. No, but it's 221 acts. And if you put one song per each one, that's 220 songs. <laughs> 221 songs. You put you put a three for each one, that's like 600 songs. I wasn't prepared to go through that many. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, Shannon, what have you been reading or watching or listening to? Yeah, I got a few. Um, okay. First of all, Phoebe Waller-Bridge hosted SNL and yeah, Taylor Swift was the musical act and it changed my life. <laughs> Period. <laughs> end of sentence. Um, I, I was out of town and I'm like, we were watching this and it... We, I was seeing a version of Hamlet, which actually was the best version of Hamlet I've ever seen, so that's nice. a whole other thing I saw, but, um, so we didn't get home until 11, and I'm like, at 11.30, we are watching this rerun of the SNL that just aired, so I can see this. Um, I finished The Politician, which is a, I guess it's a series. On Netflix. On Netflix, starring Ben Platt, who I've seen mm-hmm. in Dear Evan Hansen, and I love him so mm-hmm. much. Who was The Politician? You know, it was okay. It looked okay. It, looked it kind of had a vibe. Have you seen Scream Queens? So yeah, I yeah, it looked yeah. like, it looked like a, it looked like a combination of like Cruel Intentions and Glee. Yeah. So the thing is, I really liked Glee for the first three seasons, and then hate watched the rest of it, <laughs> and then I watched a little bit of Scream Queens and really did not like the tone of it, and so stopped mm. that. This was like. And Scream Queens was like weirdly violent in ways mm-hmm. that it, like there someone 
takes a lawnmower to people and they get oh, chopped up and I didn't awesome. like that. Anyway, um, so Dead this Rising. had kind of a similar tone as Scream Queens and has some weird stuff that I didn't love. And there was another um, Munchausen by Proxy storyline, which there have been way too many of those this year. And I'm like, I'm so done. Um, anyway, the way it ends is kind of a um, cliffhanger for a possible season two and I think the second season sounds way more interesting mm. um, but they let Ben Platt sing multiple times which Ooh. makes it worth watching <laughs> so, and going to Paltrow is really good I don't know it had its redeeming moments okay interesting and one other thing yes. um, Shay Serrano from The Ringer mm-hmm. wrote a book called Movies, and other, Movies things, and other Things and I started reading it and it's awesome but he has this whole section about where he like rectifies um, terrible like Academy Award choices over the last several years, and he has this line about um, Green Book feeling like someone yells at you, you turn around and get hit with a ham in the face, <laughs> and that's like the best way for Green Book described. <laughs> anyway, that book's a delight, and people should read it. Excellent. Yep. Cool. So for me, I. This week has been really weird and busy, and also I've been kind of sick this week, so uh, my my stuff from this week is pretty boring. I finally got around to watching Lady Bird, um, and when I was sick on Sunday night, I ended up buying Dave on Amazon, like the old the old movie with Kevin Klein and Sigourney Weaver and Sigourney Weaver, where he's a lookalike for the president. Have you not seen this? <laughs> no, I have not it's seen great. this. It's okay. really good. <laughs> I, le- I legitimately enjoy this movie. It's good. I don't know if I should, but I no, legitimately it, do. Yeah, it's pretty good. I, I haven't seen it for a really long time. I remember really enjoying it. Well, we own it now, babe. You Woo! Watch it. Yes! Thank you. I fever bought Dave. Yeah. Jeez, why did I leave you alone in, like within arm's distance of a remote for you to order stuff? Yeah. So, anyway. Huh. Uh, so, let's talk about mummies. <laughs> On that note. On Blood. that note. Um, Blood. Talking about mummies, let's start with what is a mummy? Is this a mummy? That I just did. <laughs> I just did the meme thing. It's the meme of the butterfly. Oh yeah, I think I did not know what meme. This is not a visual. This is not a visual medium. The listeners did not get it. But I did the hand. It was about as effective on me as it was our audience who can see. There's nothing. There's nothing better than a podcast explaining a visual meme. That that only one only two people in the room understood. At the time. Anyway, so what is a mummy? Thoughts. <laughs> now I'm like maybe we should just do this chronologically because I'm like I can't answer this. <laughs> okay, it's, so, it's, it a, it's a woman with a child. <laughs> this is going to be a long episode. <laughs> Um, so a mummy is a, a person, a human being that it's, a, okay, <laughs> mummification is a specific way of uh, preserving a body after death. So a mummy is a body that has been preserved according to this process. There we go. Yep. Better than Oxford English Dictionary. <laughs> Suck it, OED. <laughs> anyway. So, what are the origins of mummies, Courtney? What are the origins of mummies? That is actually debated. (laughs) But um, there are actually lots of different cultures in which mummification is a part of, like, religious belief and either religious belief or just, like, practical application of, like, 
trying to keep people from getting sick after being exposed to dead bodies. Mummification helps with that. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, um, but when we're talking about mummies, as far as like monster mummies, invariably we're talking about Egyptian mummies. So with hmm. Egypt. Unless you're talking about one of our movies. Oh yeah. Well, we'll get there. I'm so excited. In Egypt, the the process of a lot of archaeologists believe that what happened was, um, in the Sahara Desert in Egypt. Um, the conditions there are very dry and very hot. So extreme heat and dryness or extreme cold and dryness are what can produce a mummy. And there are lots of examples of bodies that have been mummified accidentally because of exposure to the elements and various circumstances lining up so that they are preserved and mummified. Um, so the theory is that the people living within the Sahara Desert, their bodies were naturally mummified. Um, just because of the elements there. And that this then influenced their religious belief, which was that a well-preserved body meant like a good afterlife. So if you wanted the best afterlife possible, your body would be preserved as pristinely as possible. Mm. Um, and then that led to what we normally think of as mummies, which are the embalmed linen-wrapped mummies inside of sarcophagi, inside of tombs full of rich treasures. Um, realistically, that only really happened with wealthy Egyptians. Um, and there are actually accounts of, like, budget versions of mummification, which we'll talk about. Um, Did you guys ever have to do this? So, like, in elementary school, we had a whole section on mummies at some oh, yeah? point. I can't remember how old I was. But you had to make, like, a tomb. So I had, like, a Barbie and mummified the Barbie with some <laughs> toilet paper. Nice. And you had to put in items that were important to you, like mm -hmm. they had done in the ancient Egypt anyway. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> do you want to talk about the actual mummification process? Um, no. I can. <laughs> I think From you your, should. Your experiences <laughs> in <laughs> elementary school. Yes, yeah. yeah. I was going to say well has, how much of has of this has stuck. Is... Okay, <laughs> so I'm going to talk about like the ideal mummification process, and then yeah. I'll talk about a couple of like budget alternatives. Yes. So the mummification process, in order to preserve the body, what had to happen was the body had to be dehydrated, and that meant that you had to remove all of the internal organs. So what happened first was um, the body would be washed usually, but then um, they would take a, a poker and stick it up through the nose. And so Herodotus actually, um, he was like a, what do you call it? Like a Greco-Roman like historian. writer, historian. Yeah. And in his account, um, he says that it was a hook that they used to pull the brain out, but that's actually not correct. Oh. Um, modern science, we've done x-rays and like CT scans of actual mummies, and one of them had the thing still up their nose. Oh. That it like broke and got stuck in there. So it's actually not a hook, it's just a rod. So what they would do is they would poke the brain and break it apart and essentially liquefy it, and then it would drain out through the nose. Ew. Yeah, it's gross. I feel bad for that guy in the afterlife with the hooks <laughs> thingy <laughs> poker stuck up his nose. Yeah. So they would... It's massively punk rock, though, playing <laughs> So they would liquefy the brain, they would drain it out through the nose, they would then rinse mm. the inside of the skull with, um, like, chemicals um, that oh. would... Essentially remove all the bits of brain matter and... They just, they just, like, stuff up the nose and then, like, blow really hard in the nose, like... Ew! And just, like, Andrew! Gross. Oh, come on. Ew, ew, ew. Anyway, 
they would kind of clean out the inside of the skull, and then they would cut an incision on the side of the body, and they would remove all of the organs in the abdominal cavity, so like the stomach and the liver and the kidneys and all that fun stuff. Um, they would then take those organs um, and set them aside. They would clean out the inside of the body with a mixture of like spiced spices and wine um, to kind of cleanse it. And then, oh, and they would leave the heart intact, actually, which I thought was interesting, because the Egyptians believed that the heart was the um, the source of all, like, thought and feeling, mm-hmm. and therefore it was needed in the afterlife, so they would leave it alone. It's weighed on the scales of Anubis against the feather to see if your heart was pure, according to theology, correct? I didn't see anything about that in my research, but I don't know. Maybe. Um, yeah, so then they would, uh, so they would rinse out the inside of the body, and then they would... Um, basically put the body in nat- natron, natron, N-A-T-R-O-N, I don't know. But basically it's a naturally occurring salt, so it would dehydrate the body. Yep. They would also do the same thing with all of the organs. So they would put that in there and dehydrate the organs. Um, the process, it, like in some accounts they say it takes 40 days, in others they say 70 days. Um, but somewhere in that time period the body would be fully dehydrated, so would the organs. The organs would either be placed into canopic jars and kept with the body, or they would actually be wrapped in linen and placed back inside the body. Um, and then from there, the body would be wrapped up in linen. Um, in the linen, they would put like trinkets and amulets and things of value that could be useful in the afterlife. Um, and then they would coat the entire body in resin to seal the body from like moisture. Um, and then the body would be placed into a human shaped coffin, um, often painted with like a picture of the person. Um, and then depending on like the wealth of the person and the status of the person would be placed into a tomb of varying size. So pharaohs were placed in like huge pyramids, whereas regular people would just be like, you know, a little room. Um, yeah. yeah. What are the budget options? Oh, the budget options. <laughs> so, um, like, the middle grade option was instead of, like, actually cutting you open and taking out your organs and preserving the organs, they would inject, <laughs> so they would put a rectal plug in there, and then they would inject your stomach with, like, a mixture of cedar oils and spices, and that would liquefy the body. Uh, or not the body, but, like, the internal organs. Yeah. So they would inject that and then put the body in the in the salt. And then once the body had dried out, they would remove the rectal plug and let all the liquefied organs drain out. So this sounds that. like a really Gross. pleasant process. Yeah. The other option <coughs> was they could basically... And the accounts of this one are really, really sparse. There's not a lot of detail. But basically it involves giving the body an enema um, to liquefy the organs. And then, mm-hmm. like, the, the salt. So... Yeah, a few different options. Yeah. Hmm. So, yeah. Uh, that is the process of mummification. Um, but, yeah, so, and then, like Shannon said, they would put things in the tomb to represent um, the person. Basically, things that they thought that person would need in the afterlife. Often their pets. They would yeah. also be mummified. Mm-hmm. Sometimes servants. Um, a lot of the time they put, they put like, family groupings together. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. Um, so, like... King Tut, for instance, he had um, various, he had, like, bows and arrows. He had, like, stools that were used in, like, military encampments. He had armor, even though he probably never fought himself because he had physical disabilities. 
Um, but then they also put in, like, for children, they would put in toys. They would leave food and underwear and clothing and, like, things that the person would need. Um, so, yeah, that's the process of mummification. <laughs> um, anything else we want to talk about with that? No? Nope. Okay. <laughs> cool. Oh, yeah, I, I yelled that last time I tried to talk about something. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did also want to mention that, like, for the ancient Egyptians... The thought of, like, a mummy that got up and walked around would just be so, like, completely foreign because the whole point of mummification is that, like, it's so that that person can rest in peace and not be up and walking around. Um, yeah, okay, so that is what is a mummy. Um, I mentioned that there are, um, there are, like, intentional mummifications in lots of other cultures. China is not one. Um, <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> There were some in um, Libya, I believe, in South Africa. Um, there are some mummies from, like, South America that... Were there some in Peru? Yeah, so the ones from Peru are a little tricky because they're intentional and unintentional at the same time. Um, they were basically, like, ritual sacrifices, but they were left out in the elements, like, purposefully. Oh. And the process, like, basically the result was that they turned into mummies. So, yeah. Hmm. Um, but yeah. Oh, there, there are mummies that have been found in Iran as well. So, yeah. And then there are, like, the bog mummies, like, people who either fell into bogs or were sacrificed <laughs> into bogs. Like the bog man in the British Museum. Yep. yep. That's really cool and yep. creepy. Yeah. Cool. Oh. All right. So, um... Let's talk a little bit about like fun mummies. Fun mummies. <laughs> yeah, this is yummy mummies. This is lame. <laughs> well, I want to talk a little bit about how like mummies kind of came into like pop culture and like uh, cultural see. consciousness. <laughs> so, um, can I talk about a misconception please. of this that I read about? So I was reading um, an article from National Geographic, and a lot mm -hmm. of people believe that um, like the idea of the mummy's curse came from the discovery of King Tutankhamun's but it tomb. Didn't. Yeah. It doesn't. But the reason they think that is really fascinating. Yeah. Because so that was 1922 and that's like a lot of the reason why there's like fervor around mummies and mm -hmm. ancient Egyptian culture and whatnot. But um one of the explorers, so Lord uh Carnivore. Carnivore? Mm -hmm. There we go. Um died of blood poisoning. So I guess it was a mosquito, right? Yeah. That bit him. Um, but <laughs> Sir Arthur Conan Doyle of Sherlock Holmes fame suggested that he died because they opened King Tut's tomb. Yep. <laughs> I thought that was awesome. Yeah. I mean, not we'll great. We'll talk about that. He was, yeah. But yeah, so the fervor on mummies actually started in like 1798, which is mm -hmm. a lot earlier than a lot of people realize. Yeah. And it was because Napoleon invaded Egypt. Um, and he, like, was pretty successful, and he brought all these scientists with them, and they were doing, like, archaeological digs and finding all these things. It's actually how the Rosetta Stone was found. Um, but then Admiral Nelson from the British came in and basically destroyed all of Napoleon's ships. Um, so Napoleon was kind of stranded in Cairo, and so in order to essentially get out as, like, the price of his defeat, he had to turn over all of the archaeological findings that they'd found, including of some mummies... Um, the Rosetta Stone, which allowed them to translate hieroglyphics for the first time, um, and like other archaeological things, those were brought to England and uh, put into the British Museum. Um, so then from there, like basically, once this started, people 
develop this fascination with Egypt and ancient Egypt, especially now that they could actually translate the hieroglyph hieroglyphics. Um, and so that led to basically like this Egypt mania over the next century or so. Um, there were like world's fairs where they had, um, oh, in Piccadilly Circus, they actually did a replica of King Seti the first tomb. Um, and it was like wildly popular. They did, they had world's fairs where they had mummies on display and unwrapping parties became really popular. Do you guys know what that is? Mm-hmm. Please tell me it's a gender reveal for mummies. <laughs> You're not far off. <laughs> um, so basically what it meant was like scientists would host these unwrapping parties for like wealthy patrons and they would get to see the scientists actually unwrap the mummy and start like chipping away at the, uh. um, at the like the resin the resin and stuff and uh and actually like watch this process and see what like little treasures they found in the wrappings um and like grave robbing became very like i don't want to say popular but became it became more common especially in egypt because people would be like oh it's a an egyptian gravesite i'm gonna go in here and i'm gonna find all these relics and take them back home and sell them for money um so yeah so great so great. Which is also why King Tut's tomb was so remarkable. It wasn't the first one that they found, but mm-hmm. it was really intact even after all these grave robberies had happened. Yep. They didn't think there were any like yep. intact tombs left. So what's fascinating about Egypt mania is that it... So um, France actually was the first country that officially um, formed an Egyptology, like was the study of Egyptology in like 1822, I think. Um, so, but what's fascinating is that in that time period, there was no, um, dread or horror associated with mummies that were found. It was just fascination and awe and this, and basically the idea that like these amazing relics of an extremely advanced civilization have been found and unearthed and they're being destroyed or overlooked by these primitive people who live in this area. So taking these artifacts and bringing them to our museums in France and England and Germany, that's justified because we can really appreciate them unlike the people there, which is really Good old-fashioned European racism. <laughs> yep. Um, and what's interesting is that this mentality really kind of led to the mummy becoming a subject of horror because it became a representation of the natural anxiety that people felt with colonialism and appropriating these artifacts. Um, It kind of, because it's a person and because they're so well-preserved, it's really easy to project feelings onto them. Um, And that's why, like, mummies often have a lot more agency than, like, other monsters and horror, which kind of act on impulse or instinct. Um, mummies have a lot more choice and, like, free will because they're they're essentially human beings. Um, but the, the stories around Egyptian curses didn't really start until the 1860s. Um, so do you guys have any idea of why that is? No. No! <laughs> you stumped me. <laughs> okay, so around the 1860s, it started... Um, basically, there started being um, a lot more uprisings um, among Islamic people in Egypt um, in response to colonialism. Um, and as a result of that, the violence that is inherent with colonialism started becoming more apparent, and it was easy and kind of fascinating and 
for lack of a better word, kind of sexy to attribute that less to like, we're bad guys who are invading other people's like homes to, oh, there are ancient mystical curses. Supernatural curses. Oh, gosh. (laughs) So like, for instance, um, one of the, one of the people who, um, is the subject of like stories around Egyptian curses earliest on was this guy who, um, he basically like was just an English dude who was kind of wealthy and like associated with the right people. And he went to Egypt and he bought a mummy case and then he went back to Cairo and then went out quail shooting out by the pyramids and accidentally shot his own arm off. Oh, so, and because he was friends with like, people in literary circles and like society members who like actually cared about like him. Um, they kind of romanticized that. And basically this story spread that like, Oh, he bought this ancient mummy and immediately afterward shot his own arm off and he's Uh. never been the same. And he's been unlucky ever since. And it's actually funny because he, the mummy did get kind of passed around between family members for a while and they all did like, they were unlucky. Um, so eventually after about 20 years, they donated it to the British museum who displayed it in the Egypt rooms and visitors who would visit the Egypt rooms would talk about how there's like this malevolent presence who plays tricks on them and how, and so it became actually nicknamed the unlucky mummy. Hmm. Um, so there's that. Excuse me. And then that mummy grew up to be Boris Johnson. (laughs) Um, and then I know that there's another guy who basically he, um, so he was part of a British expedition, a military expedition, to rescue this, like, really kind of, he was this evangelical general who got caught up in an Islamic uprising in Khartoum. So they sent out a party to rescue this guy. It was unsuccessful. A lot of people died. But this guy um, was one of the group. And so afterward, on his way back, he bought a mummy case with a mummy inside of it. And um, three years later, he was trampled to death by elephants. But this was after, like, he he was one of the people who, like, was in the battle that, <coughs> excuse me, he was in the battle that essentially, like, eliminated the Zulu tribe, and he had, like, he had a very active military career in Africa, advancing colonialism, so he got trampled by an elephant in the, like, in basically, like, a battle, so. Heck of a way to go. Yeah, heck of a way to go. I just... Um, but now yeah, I've, now I've got the Topsy song from Bob's Burgers in my head, <laughs> and that won't go away. Yay! It's too cute to trample. Okay, sorry. But anyway, that's uh, not funny. Yeah, so it's like that was clearly an instance of like violence inherent in colonialism, mm-hmm. but because he was from a newspaper family, it published like. Mm-hmm. The stories about how he bought this mummy case, and now three years later, he's been trampled to death by elephants. Who's like that? Who does that happen to? Right? It's only because huh. he bought the mummy case, not three years else. later. That kid died. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah. Um. And then from there, we started getting um, like pretty much throughout this whole period, there were mentions of the mummy in. Um, literary references. So, like, Edgar Allan Poe wrote, like, he wrote something about, like, basically a mummy that came back to life, and basically it was, like, a a satire about how this mummy is condemning modern life. Um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote one about um, 
Have you read that one? Mm -mm. So basically, it's a short story. It's a guy who falls asleep in the museum. He wakes up after hours, and there's a guy standing in front of the like the sarcophagus of a mummy. Mm -hmm. And he talks to the guy and finds out he's actually a priest of Osiris from 3,500 years ago. And 3,500 years ago, he found like a remedy for death, and he administered it to himself and his assistant Parma, and was going to administer it to like his beloved. Um, Atma, I think her name is, but then she died before he could. So um, he's like mourning her death and the fact that he can't join her in the afterlife. And then his assistant actually finds the remedy, like the antidote for um, whatever they did to stay immortal. And he, <clears throat> but he also likes Atma. So he administers it to himself and hides it and tells the guy like, I'm going to go join her in the afterlife and like, good luck to you. Um, so he, he dies. So the guy has been searching for this antidote for 3,500 years, and he's figured out that it's in something called the Ring of Thoth. Thoth. Um, and he believes it's inside of this sarcophagus in the museum. So they open it, and he finds the ring. It's actually Atma, his beloved, in the sarcophagus. So he takes the ring, and he gives himself the antidote, and then they leave the museum. And then two days later... Um, the main character reads a story in the newspapers about a man who was found dead in the museum entwined in the arms of a mummy. Oh. So, yeah. But, yeah, so that was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's first, like, story about mummies. Um, and then, like, (laughs) as, as these stories of curses started developing, um, we got more horror elements, like Louisa May Alcott's story, (laughs) which I'm going to let you talk about, Shannon. I mean, the greatest thing ever. I feel like people should just read it. It's free online through Project Gutenberg, Mm -hmm. but it's called Lost in a Pyramid or The Mummy's Curse. And yeah, it's this man who, so he'd gone on an expedition and I'm trying to remember the whole thing. Well, he gets lost (laughs) in this, um like tomb and anyway essentially ends up with these mysterious seeds that were buried with this mummy Mm -hmm. he gets lost but his servant with him eventually gets them out i'm skipping over the more exciting part of it that involves the mummy but essentially he ends up with these seeds and that's why he's telling this story his lover is like asking about them he's like oh that's so mysterious i'd really like to plant one of them and Mm -hmm. um he says no like I don't, I think something bad's going to happen. He throws them into the fire. Um, but as, are they getting married? And yeah. his friend, I guess, after that, like, one of the seeds had made it. And so he felt bad for, like, telling his lover he couldn't, she couldn't plant these seeds. And so he um, gave it to his friend who planted it, but was kind of, like, it bloomed this beautiful flower, but he was kind of getting sickly and then the um, fiance says, oh, I too found there was a second seed that fell and I took it and planted it. But then she was looking sickly and I guess the plant, like, you'll wear it and you're kind of like revived for a little bit and then you die like immediately yeah, afterwards. Yeah, it like sucks the life out of you. Yeah. Yep. And it looks like a snake, so, apparently. Yes. <laughs> it's like a big cobra snake. Um yeah, but read it because it's more <laughs> more exciting than that. But really, and very short, but really quick because this is going to come up later. Did you yeah. notice the name of the girl, the fiance, Evelyn? Evelyn, I did notice. Ah. <laughs> I was like, why do, that name keeps and it comes up somewhere else too. Yeah, we'll talk about. Yep. It. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's also like 
lot uh, lot number 249, also by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, which is um, it's the first one in which there's like an animated evil mummy that comes to life. Um, and in this one, it's the mummy is controlled by a black magician, like a modern day black ma- magician who's trying to use the mummy to like enact his will. Um, there's also The Beetle by Richard March in 1897. So in this one, London is struck by a biblical plague spread by ancient Egyptian priests. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then... Sounds like they were playing with the big boys on that one. <laughs> um, we also have a 1903 Jewel of Seven Stars by Bram Stoker. So that's an experiment. In it, there's an experiment to reanimate a woman pharaoh using radium. Um, and the protagonist of the story ends up getting possessed by the mummy. Um... And then we have, like, all the pulp fiction stories, like the weird fiction in which, like, mummies could either be dead corpses that are protected by these, like, exotic mystical spells and curses, um, or they could be reanimated undead monsters that rise to enact vengeance on the living. Um, But it's interesting because this genre ended up um, giving rise to, like, the whole adventure archaeologist kind of trope, which is how we get Indiana Jones, which influences the mummy. Like, it's really interesting. But yeah, um, the mummy is really like exoticized and um, orientalized a lot in um, literature and in film. Um, yeah, also, and we'll, you know what, I'll talk about that later. Um, so this kind of leads us up to King Tut. So, one of you guys want to talk about King Tut? We kind, uh, of, we kind of already did. Yeah, yeah. we kind of, yeah, it was just a relatively well preserved. Uh, burial site for mm-hmm. King Tut, who was a, in the kind of the grand scheme of Egyptian kings and queens and stuff like that, really very minor, but um, well known to us today because of his tomb. Right. Um, he was only 10 or 12, uh, very sickly, died very quickly um, into mm-hmm. his reign. So like... There's also lots of inbreeding in the Egyptian royal family at the time. Mm-hmm. So he was, yeah, he was very sickly. He had lots of physical disabilities. They think that he walked with a cane. Right. Um, but we know all that because his tomb was so intact and we've right. been able to study the body so thoroughly. Right. A lot of those two, a lot of other tombs had been so thoroughly scavenged and grave robbed that there weren't, mm-hmm. people out there weren't even left. And so then King Tuts was found. There was tons of stuff. And yes, he's very famous in the West right now mm-hmm. because of his the tomb is he's being found but like on a scale of like important Egyptian pharaohs he's very low on the list yep um I also wanted to say one thing about King Tut that's interesting is that um so while people have been interested in Egyptology for a while at this point um like modern scientific study like actual legitimate study of mummies didn't start until like 1901 um, so, so actually being able to, like, actually scientifically examining mummies and trying to learn about the culture instead of just making wild guesses or saying, like, ooh, it's an exotic mummy, um, that really was a fairly new thing. So finding this completely untouched tomb was a huge find. Um, they had just barely started doing x-rays on the first mummies. Um, so, yeah. Um, but King Tut was interesting as well because of the whole curse thing. So Shannon talked about, um, what is it? What was his name? Uh, George Herbert, the fifth Earl of Carnarvon. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was the financier for the project. It was actually carried out by Howard Carter and his team of people. Um, so one thing that's interesting about Carnarvon is that he 
died five months after the tomb was opened. But he had before, like, because it took a while for them to find the tomb in the first place. So mm-hmm. in advance of that, he had gone to the New York Times and signed an exclusivity deal so that they were, basically, they were obligated to report on findings from this tomb. But because he um, he was actually pretty, like, infirm and sickly before he actually died. Um, and because of that, they weren't getting a lot of information from him. And they were frustrated with that, so they were like, well, we are obligated to publish something. The only things that they knew were his health problems, (laughs) so they dramatized it and tried to tie it to this tomb. Um, And that gave rise to this idea that the tomb was cursed. Um, The other one that people talk about was Howard Carter, who was the guy who ran the the dig. Um, He actually didn't die until 1939, so 17 years afterward. Um, and it was from lymphoma. There were so many people of his crew that kind of died under, like... Yeah, that's what they say. But it's a bit... It's like, when you actually look into it... (laughs) When you actually look into it, though, it's a bit of a stretch. Like, it's a stretch. Um, so for instance, Carnivon's daughter was one of the first people to enter the tomb, and she didn't die until 1980. What was her name? Evelyn! Evelyn! I was like, Courtney's going to steal my interesting factoid! (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) Um, I thought that was... But she became, um, like, an Egyptologist, and that's who Evie's actually based on from the Mummy movies. Totally. Wow, what a fun fact. Such a fun fact. Um, But... This idea of like this cursed tomb and all of these ancient artifacts um, really kind of gripped the public and it became very apparent in pop culture. Um, And you can see that in things like Art Deco, for instance, uh, which was an architectural style of the 1920s and 30s, very heavily influenced by Egyptian archaeology. Um, sorry, architecture. <laughs> um, just go into your local cheesecake factory if you don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> yep. Anyway. Um, also, did you guys know, so there's Grauman's Chinese Theater. Did you know there's also Grauman's Egyptian Theater? I did not. Yes. Yep, there is. And it looks like a whole, like, Egyptian tomb with palm trees and... And are you where we have one of these in Ogden? Yes. <laughs> like an hour north of us? Yep. The one um, that's in Hollywood, actually, Netflix is in talks to buy it. Yes. Yes, which I think is really interesting. Oh, boy. Anyway... <laughs> Um, I also want to talk about, so getting back into like how this became a cultural phenomenon. So in 1924, there was a book published, a story published called Imprisoned with the Pharaohs, um, attributed to Harry Houdini. And it's a whole story about how he went to, he found a hidden temple inside of the Sphinx in Egypt and how he encounters like a mummified cult inside of this temple. And it's all exotic and mysterious and stuff. Fun fact. Not written by Harry Houdini. <laughs> Do you know who it was written by? Guess. Um. Um. <laughs> uh. 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 It was uh, sounding like Gilderoy Lockhart to, <laughs> to me, and he's a fictional character. He's a fictional character. So <laughs> it was actually ghostwritten by H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> okay, oh, that's awesome. good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dang. Yay. That's awesome. And Lovecraft even... will come up again later. <laughs> so oh let's boy. talk about the 1930s. Yay! Yeah! movie, Shannon! I've been lying and wait. <laughs> so this this came out after, like, Frankenstein and uh, yep. what else? Phantom of the Opera and some of the other monster movies. Yeah. It came out after Dracula, right? 
I yes, I didn't. I know it came out after well, Frankenstein, and that's as sure. far as I got. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I looked that up because, of course, the mummy is played by Boris Karloff or mm-hmm. Karloff the Uncanny, which is what I kept saying on all the advertising <laughs> on the DVD I got. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, so obviously he was already like huge hit with Frankenstein, and then becomes the mummy. Um, so yeah, the film. I'll just do a rundown yeah. <laughs> of it. Um, so the film starts with an archeo- archaeological expedition in um, 1921. So like the actual King Tut um, discovery was in 22. So kind of mirroring that a little bit. Um, you have Sir Joseph Wimple, who's um, the archaeologist who finds this mummy of, and, you know, they read the tomb and, or the, it's not a casket, is it? Sarcophagus. Thank you, sarcophagus. Um, that identifies him as the high priest Emotep. Um, and they suspect, so like with closer inspection of the mummy, um, they suspect that he was buried alive because as we talked about earlier, um, normally with mummies, their organs would have been removed and it was not in, on this mummy. Um, so in addition to like in the sarcophagus they found the mummy itself um they also find a casket it has this curse on it that they should not be opening <laughs> this casket um and sir joseph's friend um is saying no like we cannot be responsible for opening this like we we should not be doing that and treat it with respect and sir joseph is like well in the name of science we need to open this casket and figure mm-hmm. out what's in it um and while they're off like arguing about that um the assistant ralph norton does open the casket and starts reading from the scroll that's inside of it because he's <laughs> dumb um so he's reading this thing which is like um spell is not the right word mm-hmm. um anyway like an incantation that brings the mummy back to life um, so Emotep, like, his eyes kind of open and it's really creepy. Um, and so he rises from the sarcophagus and comes over and takes the scroll. And Norton sees him and just starts laughing, like, hysterically and is kind of gone mad. Um, and Emotep, like, walks off and no one does anything about it. So then you <laughs> cut to ten years later. Um, so Emotep basically his kind of made himself look like a modern Egyptian. So he's dehydrated because he's a mummy, but (laughs) I guess kind of like puts on a hat, like puts on some makeup and tries to make himself look like a human again. He's going to put on a hat, a hoodie, and sunglasses and be a Marvel superhero undercover. (laughs) Yes. Um, And he's going by the name Ardith Bay, which will come up later. Um, And... He calls on, so Sir Joseph's son is also an archaeologist, um, and he's working with Professor Pearson, and he goes to them and says, like, I'm Egyptian and I found this tomb, but, like, as an Egyptian, we are not supposed to exhume, like, this tomb and the body within it, but, you know, in the name of science, (laughs) I, like, wanted to tell you about it. And so um, these two men go and... um, bring up the tomb of Princess, um, I'm gonna say, it's an Oxidamoon, and they say it a little bit differently in this and though, in the moment we move, yeah, so I think it becomes. Ankh-Esen-Amun. Yes. Yeah. It's I'm all, it's gonna... all hyphenated. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, anak that's how they say it. Okay, I'm like, yeah. I have to think about it before, um, so anyway, so they do, um, uncover, uh, this tomb, they, 
take all the treasures to the museum in Cairo. Um, and Emotep, who like still has this scroll that he stole 10 years ago, goes and now the body has been exhumed and he starts reading it um, and is like performing this ritual to um, awaken this mummy of the princess. Um, he, well, not quite, but he, so he starts reading this and then you have Helen um, Grosvenor, who she's this half Egyptian woman who is, um, I, she's in Egypt and basically she's like the reincarnation of the princess. And mm -hmm. so he's like doing this incantation and she like is in sort of a trance and goes to the museum um, to find Emotep, but at the time it's closed. And then you have uh, Sir Joseph's son is Frank. So you have Frank there who's leaving the museum and he's like, the museum is closed. There's this woman that's kind of banging on there trying to, I have to get into the museum. Um, and she just faints um, in front of the museum. And he, so we, Frank takes her back to uh, his house. They're trying to figure out what happened to her. Um, and then Ardeth Bay shows up and I put him, basically Frank falls in love with Helen instantly. <laughs> She's really beautiful and he's, I don't know. Um, but Ardeth Bay shows up, um, and Helen is, like, when she sees him, is instantly kind of, like, drawn to him because part of her has got this, like, reincarnated spirit of this princess. Um, and so, making a long story short, like, they, um, so Helen goes to meet Ardeth Bay again um, because she's so fascinated with him and in this like pool of water uh, which will come up again later mm -hmm. um, he reminds her of like her past life is Princess Inaksu Moon and Emotep basically so the princess had died Emotep was trying to resurrect her um, which people did not look well on um, and so they buried him alive um, yes so Helen goes back with, like, Frank, and they're trying to, basically, Ardeth Bay is now trying to kill Helen so that he can resurrect the mummy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so she goes back with Frank, and they're trying to keep her from going back to Emotep, so she's not under this spell, and they're trying to do that as kind of in vain, so she does end up going back to Emotep, who, yeah is going to kill her, mummify her, and then resurrect her so the two of them can be immortal together forever. Um, Helen, like, does have kind of some memory of her past life, and so they're in... Actually, I can't remember exactly where they are. But anyway, she calls on the spirit of Isis, which was, like, her spirit is an oxen moon. Um, and this statue um, has, like, a beam of light when she calls upon the spirit, which destroys the scroll, which without the scroll, Emotep is now just a mummy again. So he turns to dust, and Helen and Frank, I'm sure, fall in love and get married and have babies. So. Okay. <laughs> yep. have a super annoying kid later. No, wait, I'm thinking Wrong else. one. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So interesting things about that. So Emotep was a real, like historical figure from historical yeah. accounts of Egypt. And Anaxonamun was um, actually the wife of King Tut. That was her mm. name. So people who would have gone to see this movie would have recognized that name and yeah. known who she was. Um, I also think it's really interesting that this movie, um, unlike a lot of other monster movies, it doesn't have a lot of like scary shock moments. It's mostly like this kind of looming threat 
that and this anxiety that grows, which really kind of mimics like the the lore of the mummy over time as well. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, and also like this really, it has a lot of heavy Orientalism. It's kind of this war between Eastern occultism and Western science. This obsession with like the bride and the dual existence of like I'm you know a a man of science and like you know, blah, 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 but I'm also this reanimated dead guy, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, fun fact about this movie, too. The screenwriter was actually a news correspondent on the um, King Tut thing. Oh. So, yeah, he had, lots like, first-hand accounts. Yeah, lots of connections. Um, and there were some sequels from this. So there was The Mummy's Hand, The Mummy's Curse, <laughs> and then, like, a whole bunch of things, like... Abbott and Costello meet the mummy. Abbott and Costello yes. meet the mummy. Yes. Uh, there was, like, a Three Stooges movie about the mummy. Um... <laughs> Also, around this time, so in 1935, H.P. Lovecraft and Hazel Heald wrote Out of the Aeons, which actually links the mummy to Cthulhu. Yes. Who's that? I mean, it is Lovecraft, so everything's literally to Cthulhu. It's so, it's so <laughs> um, there's uh, 1938, Eyes of the Mummy by Robert Block, which, um, unlike Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, I believe, who uh, had the mummy possess somebody and, like, he, or sorry, yeah. In that one, the mummy possessed somebody, but in this one, in Block's version, the protagonist's consciousness is transferred to the mummy's body, which is interesting. Um, there's 1939, We Want Our Mummy, which is the Three Stooges movie. Um, <laughs> and then there are comics with the mummy. So, for instance, Tales from the Crypt, The Haunt of Fear, The Vault of Horror, and then Marvel's Encanto, The Living Mummy. Um, and then that... Look forward to Disney Plus, Encanto, The Living Mummy, <laughs> coming 2022. <laughs> Um, and then 1959, we have The Mummy, um, which is basically like a reboot of the franchise. It has a lot of similarities, so I will go over that really quickly. Fun fact, this stars <laughs> Peter Cushing, and The Mummy is played by Christopher Lee. <laughs> so that's fun. Um, so in this one, um, so John Banning, his father Stephen, his uncle Joseph Wemple, um, they're searching, and the, the names of the mummy and the princess are changed in this one. So it's Princess Ananka, who is the high priestess of the god Karnak. Um, so John breaks his leg and can't go into the tomb, but the other men go. They find this mummy, um, and they also find um, they also find this mummy that appears to have all of his organs and stuff. Um, and they find this the scroll of life, and... Uh, Stephen, who is Peter Cushing's dad, Stephen reads from the Scroll of Life and kind of goes insane. They find him in like a catatonic state um, and they leave. So then um, three years later, they're back in England and Stephen comes out of his catatonic state and he's in like a mental home. He calls for his son <clears throat> and he tells him, I read from the Scroll of Life, I accidentally brought back Karis, who is the mummy without the... And, like mummification process um fun fact so this name this is the mummy Karis. Karis was chosen as a name because the screenwriter thought that that was the name of an egyptian god it is not <laughs> so yeah i mean talking about cultural appropriation yep. <laughs> yes we still haven't we still haven't fixed that in 2017 but we'll get to that yeah we'll get to that <laughs> um so anyway, so the high priest was sentenced to be entombed alive to serve as the guardian of the princess's tomb um, because he secretly loved her and was trying to restore her to life after she died. Um, so yeah, so Stephen's 
telling this to his son. He's saying Cars is going to hunt down and kill everybody who um, desecrated the tomb. So meanwhile, there is an Egyptian man named Mohammed Bey. Um, so yeah, talking about like yeah. the whole Bey name. Um, so Mohammed Bey, he's a worshiper of Karnak, and he basically he puts Karis, the mummy, into a box and transports him to England. Um, in the process of like transportation, the box falls into a bog. So to get him out, he has to read from the Scroll of Life again. So the mummy comes out of the bog. Um, they, so he sent, Mehmet sends Karis to murder Stephen, um, which he does. He then sends Karis to murder Joseph Wemple. So that's John's uncle. So John has gone to talk to his uncle about this and he, the mummy shows up, kills his uncle. He fires some shots at it, like to no effect. Um, and then the police get involved and John is trying to tell them there's a mummy on the loose and they don't believe him. Um, but he gets all of these like accounts from credible witnesses who have seen this mummy walking around. Um, meanwhile, so John has noticed that his wife, Isabel, bears an uncanny resemblance to Princess Ananka. Um, <clears throat> so Mohammed Bey then he's sending, he sends uh, Karis to kill John. And Karis is about to kill him, but Isabel rushes in to help her husband. Karis sees her, lets go of, of John, and leaves because she looks just like the princess. So um, John then, like, goes to Mehemet and, like, surprises him. And he's like, oh, no, you're not dead. So then he sends Karis after him again. He's choking John, and Isabel comes in and stops him. And he it's not working, but her hair is up. So John tells her, like, like like, put your hair down. So she puts her hair down, and Karis lets go. Um, she And he's kind of obedient to her. So then Mehemet comes in and is trying to get the, the mummy to kill John. He won't do it. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so then so then Mehemet tries to kill Isabel, and Karis kills him. Um, Isabel passes out, and the mummy carries her into the swamp uh, and is followed by John and the police. Um, Isabel wakes up and tells Karis to put her down, which he does. Um, she moves away from him. The police open fire and cause him to sink into the bog, taking the scroll of life with him. And that's the end of the movie. So, yeah. It's a lot of similarities. Yep. Some differences as well. Um, so, yeah. That's the 1959 version. Um, this one had some uh, some sequels as well, including The Mummy Shroud in 1969. Um, so in this one, a bunch of archaeologists in their back are kind of murdered one by one. The The common theme with these mummy movies is that the first one is good. And then <laughs> the sequels afterward get progressively more dumbed down. So There's one very notable exception to that rule. Oh my gosh. And it's The Mummy Returns. No. <laughs> Sorry. I meant the first one being good rule. <laughs> very notable exception. Oh, yes. We will talk about that. <laughs> um, so, yeah. The Mummy Shroud. Um, there's also Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, which is based on one of those literary works that we mentioned. Uh, it was the Jewel of... Oh, gosh. Which one was it? Uh, the Jewel of Seven Stars by Bram Stoker. So, that one inspired the second sequel for that series. So, in this one, um, it's a reincarnated Egyptian queen. Um... Funny story on this one, it's not that funny, but production on this movie was kind of cursed. Like, 
a mummy's tomb would be. So the director actually oh, died yeah. five weeks into production. Yikes. Um, Peter Cushing was originally cast as the main character's father, and then they had to recast him because his wife passed away. Ooh. So, yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Um, other mummy things, meanwhile, and you guys weigh in if there's anything that I've missed, because I just kind of made, like, a random list of grab bag things. So, Doctor Who has done some mummy episodes. <laughs> uh, in 1976, The Mummy was a boss in Breakout, which was a video game. Mm-hmm. Um... Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, he's searching for the Lost Ark in Egypt, so there's a lot of, like, Egyptology mummy kind of motifs happening there. Does the mummy show up in Monster Mesh? I'm trying to, I'm racking my brain The Monster Squad? Probably. Well, the Monster Squad, he definitely did, but the but <laughs> I Monster I started Mesh watching song, it, and yeah. it's wild. <laughs> yeah. Um, kind of like a Stephen King... I don't know. It's like yeah. Stand By Me if you threw monsters into it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, young Sherlock Holmes did. So he uncovers an Egyptian cult that mummifies live people as human sacrifices. So that's fun. Uh, Stargate. There, There's like a gateway to a distant planet that mirrors ancient Egypt. And there's an alien who's like masquerading as Ra and making himself a god. Psych did one that was pretty good. Um, yeah. About, like, a guy was trying to steal from the museum, uh, and in order to get out of the museum and avoid the security cameras and all that kind of stuff, he dressed up as a mummy. Yep. Uh, and spooked everybody. That was pretty good. <laughs> yep. Um, do um, yummy mummy cereal. <laughs> yummy <laughs> mummy cereal. Before yeah. um, the new mummy. Um, yeah. yeah, which was discontinued, though, before, so we don't see that one. Like occurring as much as Count Chocula and Boo Berry and all those. Frankenberry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Frankenberry's the other one. Yep. Um, what else? Okay, so I also want to talk. Oh, so 1992, there was the first World Congress on Mummy Studies. So, like I mentioned, at in like the early 1900s, they started actually studying like scientifically mummies, but access to mummies was fairly like scattered. Um, everybody was kind of doing it differently with different types of equipment. So this, in 1992, was the first time that they actually got together and compiled all of this research. Um, and they started actually, like, integrating individual biomedical and bioarchaeological information with, like, existing databases and basically putting all of this research together to create this body of knowledge about mummies. And this excited a lot of people and kind of revitalized interest in mummies. Um, which led to like Goosebumps has multiple, like that book series has multiple ones that deal with mummies. There was the 1997 Disney Channel movie Under Wraps. Um, yeah, I had to throw that in there for Shannon. <laughs> oh yeah. I haven't actually seen that one though, which is I a shocker. I have either. Um, <laughs> cause I've seen most of them. Yes. And then that leads to 1999, The Mummy. Yay! And their sequels. Go ahead, Shannon. I'll, yeah, I'll try to get through the first one really quickly and mainly just set it up and then Andrew can talk about <laughs> everything that comes after. Yep. Um, yeah, so 99, and maybe just a little bit of setup for, so Universal owned the rights to The Mummy and these other, like, monster movies and tried for a while to do a reboot of The Mummy after the, did you say it was 59 mm-hmm. version of it? Um, so Clive Barker, who I guess is known for, is that Hellraiser? Mm-hmm. Um was attached to do it for a while, um, like a really violent, dark horror um, version of it. Um, 
and Universal lost interest in that one. And it's one point it went over to George Romero of uh, Night of the Living Dead fame. And that was also going to be dark. Um, and now I'm not going to remember who actually directed it. Stephen Summers ended up with it um, after all these complications with getting a director. They were so interested in, it was supposed to be a low budget movie, but they were so interested in like his take on it that they upped the budget quite a bit and it was a big success. So, yep, worked out for them. Um, My sister had a, had a action figures of the mummy and yeah. Mummy Fraser, yeah. Had like a, one of those little like action set pieces because it was like, I think it was the altar and then Imatep and Rick. Nice. Uh, in there, so there's definitely at least one piece of merchandise that was sold. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, yeah, so kind of set up for this. So it starts in ancient Egypt and kind of gives us a setup for High Priest Imhotep. So based on the original um, Universal version. Um, he had an affair with an Oxunamun who was engaged to the pharaoh. Um, so they were kind of sneaking around behind his back. The pharaoh um, catches them and they then decide to kill the pharaoh. And before like they get caught now for murdering yeah. <laughs> the leader of their country, um, Imhotep is taken away by his priests. So he doesn't get caught. And Anaxunamun kills herself thinking that Emotep will come back and resurrect her so that they can be together again and she won't get caught. Um, so Emotep then goes so after Anaxunamun is uh, buried, he steals her body and then goes to... Um, I'm, <laughs> I can't pronounce anything, you guys. Um, try. Uh, <laughs> Homonoptra? Homonoptra. Oh, yeah, Homonoptra. I can do it. Um, otherwise known as the City of the Dead, which I should have just led with. Um, <laughs> anyway, and so he takes her there to resurrect her, um, but they're caught by the Magi who were um, like the... Are, why, why do you keep bouncing in, in excitement over there? Because I like him. They were also they were also notoriously bad at giving each other gifts because they kept giving things that trading out. Yes. Um, is it technically it's spelled like no, it's magi? Yeah, no, it's, but it's I kept thinking it was magi the entire time growing up watching these movies. Anyway, I bought you this sword. Ah, <laughs> I I traded my scabbard so I could get you the. Oh no! So they're basically that like was, the pharaohs for our re, for our listeners. That might have been a deep pull. <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't know. Sorry. Hopefully, everybody knows about the gift of the match. Sorry. And if you Christmas don't, episode, if you don't send us to do. send us a message and we'll explain it just for you. Anyway, moving on. Um, So they were the guards for the pharaoh, so they catch them. Um, So the priests um, that were helping were all mummified, and Imhotep is subjected to the curse of Homdai, where his tongue is cut out. He is buried alive with flesh-eating scarabs, which... As a child, were the creepiest thing in the world to me because they, like, go under your skin and crawl up, and they're really gross. Um... So they bear him alive, but basically the curse on him is that, like, if anyone ever resurrects him, he will be immortal and super powerful, which makes no sense. Like, makes zero sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the Medjai, like, keep guard over him and try to prevent anyone from resurrecting Imhotep. So then it goes to 1926, where you have an Egyptologist slash librarian, um, Evelyn Carnahan, who we've talked about. 
Um, her brother, Jonathan, um, who's really just always is in it for the treasure, um, gives her this box that he has somehow come up with mm-hmm. and, um, Evie kind of like opens it and finds this map that seems to point to Hominoptera. Um, their curator doesn't believe the city of gold or the city that Ed sorry really exists and so like damages the map and then it turn uh, Jonathan it kind of comes out oh I got this from this American adventurer Rick O'Connell and so wow. we're gonna go and find him um, <laughs> and have him take us to take us to Hominoptera I, I would just like it known for the record <laughs> that I went and Andrew started nodding he agrees with me I do not <laughs> I do not <laughs> Maybe it's because I can't get Brendan Fraser, like current Brendan Fraser, out of my head. Yeah, you didn't, you didn't <laughs> he didn't age terribly well. Look, he just he just kind of he does have a very like Indiana Jones kind of mm. swath. It's, it's, it's the swagger that he's got. Yeah, That's swagger <laughs> and it's the outfit. And the hair. Um, so he discovered this city three years earlier when he was in the French Foreign Legion and. I won't get into all that, but basically, like, there was a mummy face in the sand. Yep. Um, O'Connell is about to be hanged for some reason or another that I can't he remember. He had a really good time. <laughs> he had a really good time. <laughs> um, and so he says, okay, I guess I'll take you guys there if you can stop me from getting hanged. And um, Evelyn promises the prison warden that he can have a fourth of the treasure that they find um, if... They let him out, but the guy insists on coming along. Anyway, so Rick guides him to the city. Ardith Bay, um, hunky Magi guy, mm-hmm. is still <laughs> um, there, tries to get them to leave, but they won't. And so um, the explorers, they kind of like break off into two bits. Evie's looking for the Book of the Living, instead stumbles onto Emotep's remains and opens it. And then the other team finds... He's still juicy! What? Sorry. He's still juicy. That's all. Ew. Um, <laughs> another team finds the Book of the Dead, which Evie, who I love, but in this moment is kind of idiotic, and starts reading from the Book of the Dead and awakens Emotep. Um, Emotep then goes and starts, like, killing off members of the expedition. They all leave, but he kind of tracks them down and starts um, killing them off so he can return to his full strength, and yeah. he is quite hunky, too. And <laughs> yeah, once he's got his skin back. Usually the Americans is one of the canopic jars. Um, yes. Which is why he's hunting down the Americans who stole those jars. Thank you. Um, yep. I missed anything else. Nope. <laughs> um, Artist Bay, so they, they go back to him and say, like, what can we do about this? And he's like, well, I think he wants to resurrect an Oxunu moon and he can kind of similar to the old movie can kill Evie and I guess resurrect her in Evie's body or something along those lines something like that um there's some kind of sacrifice exchange thing going on yeah, yeah. but um if they brought him back by reading the book of the dead it can be assumed that they can read from the book of the living and stop him and so Emotep tracks them down. Evie agrees to go with him if he spares the rest of the group, which he doesn't, but they get out of the scuffle and go back to Hominoptera so they can rescue Evelyn, which they do. She reads from the Book of the Living, makes Emotep mortal, and Rick wounds him, and Emotep vows revenge, which is how we get a sequel. The yep. end. <laughs> well done. And Rick and Evie end up together, which yes, is why 
Which is why I like the mummy return so much because the cutest thing about the mummy is like they're is just that, very cute yeah. together. It's a, it's a, it's and it's a, the best part. It's a rom com with some mummies in it. Exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's cool. It's fine. <laughs> so, do we want to talk about the sequel really quick? Mummy Sequels. Returns. Well, let's talk about the one sequel first. Uh... <laughs> And then, and then I have something else that happens kind of like in between that one and yours, <laughs> which is great. You're gonna love it. <laughs> All right, You're gonna love it. Right, okay, so tell us about the Mummy Returns. I mean, the, the short version. I don't want to prolong like our episode. <laughs> we already oh, have. I love it, but um, I mean, there's another woman who is actually like the reincarnated version of an Oxunamun who is trying to track down Emotep, and so he ends up like performing and this is where I say the pool of water <laughs> comes into case there's a lot of flashbacks to their life in ancient Egypt and Evie is uh, so Rick and Evie have a kid and they're cute together and it is very cute Evie is the reincarnated version of is Nefertiti who was the pharaoh's daughter mm-hmm. and so she's like having all these kind of flashbacks of what happened to her then um Imhotep like stabs an oxymoron and has like the it gets the actual like soul of the real anoxymoon back into her or whatever and um oh yeah and the rock is the scorpion king and comes after him <laughs> essentially it ends up that like you've got rick and emotep like kind of dangling over the underworlds and Evie goes back to save Rick because true love but Anoxunamun does not come back for Emotep and goes to like save herself and, and he's, he's so sad. sad and so he's like Anoxunamun come back <laughs> and the dead take him like the underworld yep. takes him and yep. that's about that movie does, in a nutshell <laughs> it does okay. have my favorite uh, scene maybe in cinema history where after the Scorpion King is like chucked into the pit, Imhotep comes running up and goes, "No!" And like throws <laughs> yeah. his arms out like super dramatically. He's very extra. It's amazing. Uh, um, and Andrews complained a lot about how dumb their kid is, but he does have the, the the whole thing revolves too around that like bracelet with the Scorpion King. Then, anyway, he puts it on, uh, and so they're trying to get it off him before uh, he dies. Anyway, they should just cut he's so precocious and cute. Uh, yeah. Um, Fun fact, so Nefertiri, which is uh, Evelyn, <laughs> yeah. Evelyn's like, uh, she's Nefertiri reincarnated. Um, so we talked about how Anunsuna Moon is based on King Tut's wife. Nefertiri was his mother. Oh, oh no, is it nice. Nefertiti? Is it Nefer- or Nefertiri? Nefertiri. Nefertiri. I think it is, right? I was saying, what else is new? Um, but yeah, okay, so before we talk about Oh, there was also an animated series based on... Oh, yeah, the animated series. Oh, I thought that was what you were going to talk it about. It is not. He's like, stop before that one. We have to bring up the animated series. No. It's so vital oh gosh, no. to the canon. We do have to bring up Bubba Hotep. <laughs> do you guys know about uh, do this? Do we have to? Do you know about Vaguely. this? <laughs> so this <Yeah>. is... Elvis <laughs> is alive. And he... So what happened was a few years before <laughs> so Elvis died, he switched places with an impersonator, and then the impersonator died, so he lost his chance to like regain his identity. So he's now in a nursing home, and one of the people in there with him is his name is Jack, and he believes himself to be JFK. <laughs> and the the mummy comes and decides to like make their senior center like his personal hunting grounds, and so it's all about them fighting. Bubba Hotep, the mummy. I need to watch that. Yeah. Sounds like that kind of crap. It stars, I love it stars Bruce K. 
Campbell as Elvis. Of course it does. Yep. Of yep. course it does. Yeah, I just had to bring that up because I find that hilarious. So, Andrew, tell us about the third sequel. <laughs> Which I refuse to watch because Evelyn Chinese is one. no longer Rachel Weisz. Yeah. Why bother? She has, she has a moment yeah. where, like, so she's become a novelist, right? Sorry, I'm taking this, just the beginning part from you. So she's become a novelist and her and Rick, like, their life is really boring and, like, they've lost the fizzle in their relationship and it's so it's sad and pathetic. Really but she's doing a book reading of her, like, mummy book and it's, like, a romance. And one of the, <laughs> one of the women in the audience is like... Is this really based on you? She goes, I can honestly say, and this is the first shot of her. Uh-huh. She's like, I can honestly say that that happened to a completely different person. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a little funny. Yeah. I mean, Rachel Weiss just kind of like <clears throat> elevates the whole movie because yeah. she's an excellent actress and she's so charming and like a little bit bumbling. Like yeah. she kind she's of. She's very Catherine Hepburn esque. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> This movie, yeah, yeah. I will say the actress in this movie. <laughs> sorry, Andrew. sorry, Andrew. The actress in this movie, like you can definitely like tell it's not Rachel Weisz, and I think about what Rachel Weisz would have been in the role, and I'm like, oh, it's too bad they couldn't get her back. But after a little while in the movie, you do kind of forget. She looks like she looks She's like fine. the store brand Haley Atwell to me. Yeah, um, I would say that. Which too. is kind of unf- like I feel bad. Like I feel like that. <laughs> she, I mean, she did. She was fine. She's fine. It's just like. They recast one of the leads. They took, they took the core of these characters and put them in a situation. I'm going to talk about this in a second because 2008 was just like the year to do this. <laughs> um, but uh, so yeah, it's um, it's like it's 1946, so probably about like ten or so years after <clears throat> the events of The Mummy Returns. Um, Rick and Evie apparently were like involved in espionage during World War Two. Um, doing which I would have rather seen like a movie about that. Yeah. <laughs> look, look, look. I'm gonna, uh, you know what? I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna get to that in a second. Um, and so that yeah, they were in espionage missions in in World War Two, <clears throat> but then it cuts back to like their life, and it's really <clears throat> sad and pathetic. Like Rick tries to go fly fishing and is really bad at it, so he just shoots fish instead. Um, and yeah, Evie's a novelist who has written books called The Mummy and The Mummy Returns, which is really <laughs> on the nose, I think. But they are these kind of like pulp fiction-y kind of like yeah. romance. And so then that's like, that's her life now, but like she's trying to write a third one and she just can't, she just can't come up with it. Her life I, is so okay. boring. I hate that she's a novelist. She was running the freaking British Museum. I don't think, I don't think she that's ever was. That's what I'm saying. She was so she intelligent, was. but then she could also kick butt. Yeah. And so, uh, no, she's like running. She's the like Egyptology a character you could really admire. British Museum. I didn't think. Well, I thought she was like a minor historian because there's no. that really uptight British man who's actually a Medjay, who's like, "I'm in charge here. You knocked down my library. You, whoa! That was in the first. You would never get married because you're the, so clumsy. That's in the first movie, honey. In the second movie, she's running the Egyptology department uh, at the British Museum. Do not question me I about this. Remember, I know. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. anyway. <laughs> Um, their life is really boring, and their kid is, like, getting into trouble at school all the time, and we find out that he's actually dropped out of school, and he's on an archaeological... Di- oh, I forgot, you know what? How could I have forgotten this? There's ten minutes of explanor- explanatory dialogue, <laughs> or, or scenes, that happen about that set up the whole thing in China. It's ten freaking minutes long. Yeah, with Jet Li. Long. Jet Li is a, is a... Look, you don't... It doesn't matter. He's the Scorpion King in China. He's trying to unite <laughs> everybody in China, and then he he's makes a deal. He's become a terracotta mummy. 
And, has magic. Yeah, so there's magic. He turns he and his entire army turn into terracotta soldiers, which explains the terracotta warriors. Woo! Fun fact: in Egypt, so discount like mummification. If you couldn't afford like the coffin, you a lot of people use terracotta. So, so yeah, so like, so uh, so yeah, he's like this very dangerous guy who actually who also learned how to control the elements. Like he's some kind of like. Uh, he's a magician. He's the last airbender or something like that. <laughs> and uh, he's like learned how to manipulate all these different metals and, and elements and stuff like that. And then um, he goes after this witch who can help him find immortality. And he fall, she falls in love with his, with his general. He's super mad. But, and so has the general drawn and quartered. Um, and, then the, uh, and then he... Stabs her. stabs her. She runs away, and as she's running away, she's like, "Ah, I cursed you. How do you like being cursed? You cursed jerk." And uh, he turns into a terracotta man, and all of his soldiers around him are also terracotta soldiers. It's ten minutes long. It's too long. Um, and so then, to fast forward to the present day, Rick and Evie's son is is dropped out of school to go on this like archaeological dig in Egypt, they're looking for the emperor. In China. Sorry, it should have been Egypt. Anyway, they're in China looking. They find him. They uh, resurrect him. They're betrayed by a British man um, uh, who this faction these, this faction of Chinese soldiers uh, wants to bring back the emperor to kind of And they bring, take the Eye of Shangri-La. Which is a big diamond. Look, you don't need to know this. It's, it's, just, <laughs> it's the first one again, but like way worse. It is way um, worse. And so, yeah, the, the, he is... the. Jet Li escapes, and there's a big chase, and um, they get the O'Connells to come back into espionage because they're so bored with their married life that like, <laughs> like Rick's like, hey, I'm gonna. He's like, he's like, try. He's like trying to initiate sex with his wife, and she's just like, no thanks. And then she finally like want. She tries to initiate sex, and he's asleep, and it's just like the most sad. Like it's just like this, this is. I'm doing everything I like about the Mummy Returns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is, and so then they're just like they're arguing about their son. What's the son's name? Rick Jr. I don't know. Sure, Alex. His name is Alex, who has British British accent in the second movie and American accent in the third. But movie. a really bad one. It like was a almost New like a, it was. It was like, hey, what are you doing here? I'm here digging up these mummies, and it's like. Your dad doesn't have that accent, and you used to be British. I don't understand. <laughs> Look, the kid, the kid reminded me of Alden Ironreich doing Han Solo, like which, which he did a great job trying to be Han Solo, but he was you could tell he was obviously putting it on and all this kind of stuff, and it really felt like this guy was like putting on like I'm going to be Brendan Fraser in 1999, and it's like there's no right, replicating I mean. Brendan Fraser in 1999. <laughs> anyway, they find that there's this. Oh it was a heroic effort. Uh, there's so then there's this mysterious Chinese assassin who tries to kill Rick Jr. and also um, and then. Once the, the the emperor has been released, she's trying to stop the people that are trying to like reawaken him because this elixir of life is inside the diamond that's the Eye of Shangri La. Like, it's it constantly matter. there are all of these steps, and at every step, it's like we must stop him from doing this, or all will be lost. And the, okay, and he's and done he that. Spoiler alert: They don't stop him a couple of times, um, and, and then it just, they do. Yeah, and it, and then there's and then they do, and then they eventually do. They have to go to Shangri-La, and some yetis help them get there. Ooh, Look, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. <laughs> Michelle Yeoh is in this movie. She I can see, and that does matter. That's okay, look, she's fine. Like, but look, it's not good. So, like, like Rick Jr. falls in love with this mysterious Chinese assassin who is 
the daughter of Michelle Yeoh, who was the witch who fell in love with Joan. She's been alive this whole time because of the elixir of life. They, oh, they, they're immortal. They're immortal. Oh, there, they give up their immortality to stop Jet Li. They eventually do. There's the motorcycles and fire bombs and people get crushed by giant gears. Look, it doesn't matter. And then sword coming into a, into the mummy's heart from two sides. Look, Ooh. it's dumb. And then um, it like fuses together inside. Like, there's this reconciliation between uh, Rick Jr. and Rick and female Rick. Look, I don't remember their names. Okay, just... Um, sorry, Evie. I know her name. I, anyway, it's dumb. It's bad. Um, but, like, it's dumb and bad in the same way that Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is. And I couldn't help but draw a lot of, like, comparisons to the two because mm-hmm. they both came out in 2008. They were both adventure series. Um, one is definitely more beloved than the other. But, like, they were kind of trying to revitalize these, and the, but they took these core cast of characters and put them into situations that are completely opposite, like, well, not completely opposite, but they're just not what we fell in love with the characters for. Yeah. But Indiana Jones, he, instead of fighting the Nazis, now he's fighting the Russians. And they even allude to him doing, like, espionage stuff during World War II, which would have been way more interesting to watch. Yeah. Um, and so... <sighs> and, yeah, and, like, they changed, like, what, because, like... The, the the Chinese mummies, they're not really mummies. They're just, like, he's, like, a terracotta man under a curse. Like, it's not, like, Egyptian mummies type yeah. of thing. And, I mean, they keep talking about how they how much they hate mummies. But it's, like, these aren't... They're just undead creatures. Like, there's a bunch of zombies and stuff. Like, it's just... Yeah. Ugh. It's dumb. It's really bad. And, and then they, like... They have young characters who are supposed to, like, help the old cast. But they're so unlikable that it's just not even <laughs> worth it. Um, yeah. and yeah, just transplanting, like, what we loved about those characters into something different in a, in a desperate attempt to, like, revitalize it, and it's just like, yeah. just give us what we wanted to see, man. Here's, give us here's how I feel about Chris it. Pratt and Chris Pine as Indiana Jones or Rick O'Connell. I don't care. Just, just put them in a blender, just shake them up. I don't care. <laughs> give me one of the two of them and, and here's, put it in there. Here's what I think about this one and the 2017 version, is that what makes the other Mummy movies... So good. The 1932 one, the 1959 one, and the 1999 one, to a lesser extent, 2002 one, is that it's drawing on the same themes that we know and love about the mummy. So like this anxiety about colonialism and invasion of other people's culture and misappropriation of those cultures. And um, and like the whole like romance theme tied up in this melodrama with a little bit of horror. Like that's a great combination of themes. Yeah. And the Chinese one and the 2017 one lose that. Strong disagree on the 2017 one. It's just done really poorly. Okay. Um, which we'll talk, let's which talk, we'll talk about, about. Let's talk about it now. Um, so I think that... So the 2017 one, just um, a little overview here, is uh, Tom Cruise is like a soldierman, but also not a soldierman. He's a thief. I don't know. No, he's in the military. <laughs> he and Jake Johnson are... The Jake, same age. Was a Jake Johnson. Jake Johnson. And and now I'm gonna mom. say now I'm gonna put this in like so big of air quotes you could probably hear it on the podcast <laughs> like More partners more. in the military so they're supposed to be roughly the same age. <laughs> okay, <laughs> like, you can hear my you can hear my bones cracking as I'm yes. like furiously the doing movie, air quotes. The whole movie. Look, we'll get to that. <laughs> anyway, the overview is that yes they. So these two, they're in the military, they're, but they're also like ancient relic like finder. They're basically like treasure hunters, but in ancient the military. Ancient relic finders. Kind of, essentially. <laughs> they're, like they're supposed to be long-range reconnaissance, but they actually like go around they're just stealing treasure artifacts. Hunters. They're just treasure hunters that like yeah. try to, because it's like they're based in Iraq and all this kind of stuff. 
and they, you know, they, uh, they there's no reason for them anyway. Ah, I can't, I can't even focus. Okay. It's, but, but they find this tomb of this, this mummy that, hey, who, who would have guessed was bad, and she <laughs> stuck around. So, this, in this one, yeah. she actually was a princess, and she was the heir to the throne, and then her father gets a new wife and has a son, and she realizes she's no longer the heir to the throne, so she makes a deal with Set, who the movie says is the Egyptian god of death, and he's repeatedly, not. Repeatedly. Repeatedly talk about how Set is the Egyptian god of death. He's and not. He's not. Google it, you guys. Like, for real. For real. Google the gonna, damn thing. If you're going to write a movie about mummies, at least do a little bit of preliminary like, Just Google research. it. I mean, for heaven's just, sake. He doesn't even have to be the god of death. Just make him Set. Just call him the god of chaos. I don't... Anyway. Anyway. Sorry. So, so anyway, so she makes the deal with Set and gets like all these tattoos over her body and gets weird powers and kills she her father two, and kills the baby and she, kills his wife. She gets two eyes in her eyes. Oh yeah, eye. like two pupils in her eyes. And then um, four total. And then she picks she picks a <laughs> man you. and part of part of the deal is <laughs> four total. Look, I just want to make sure it's like two pupils in her I'm eyes. It's sorry. like everybody has two pupils in their eyes. I followed. I followed. Yes. But anyway, so part of her deal is that for immortality and power, she has to pick a man and kill him in like a ritual killing and basically Set will inhabit the body of this man and she will be his queen and he will be the lord of death over the people or whatever. Did she pick Tom Cruise? Mm. So eventually... Eventually. So wait, in her... I in probably her, would too. Originally she picked somebody else. <laughs> Shannon. <laughs> so originally she picked somebody else and then like people uh, come in and kill her. I'm pretty sure it's the Pharaoh's guards. Like they sure. discovered her after she was They don't really make it clear. But they, they kill the dude <laughs> before she can do the sacrifice with her special knife with the special stone in the top. And so anyway, so they like mummify her alive and they put her in the special they they take her to Iraq. I don't know why. But they do. And they fill and, and they, they, they mummify her, her with mercury. Yeah, they put her in like a pool of mercury. Oh. With like chains to hold it down. I'm like, that's not how chains work, but okay. Um <laughs> it's like it's like the coffin is like suspended by these chains and it's like, oh, it's to hold her down. I'm like, that's not what they're doing. <laughs> anyway. Um so it's found by Tom Cruise and Jake Johnson and girl what's her name? I don't know. Blondie McBlonde face. Yep. And uh, Tom Cruise, like, shoots at the chain that lifts up the coffin out, and they put it on the plane, they're like, we have to get out of here before these insurgents come and destroy the whole place. So yeah, they're taking similar, it away in the plane. Similarly to Vigo and Janos in Ghostbusters 2, <laughs> Tom Cruise is immediately, like, brainwashed by the yeah. sarcophagus. Oh, thing, and so. Jake Johnson gets bit by a spider in the tomb. Like, after they bring it up, all these spiders come in, and it bites him, and they're like, it's not poison, it's not being such a baby, but he dies. Basically, on the yeah, I don't on the plane, and he becomes like reanimated by by the mummy. Aww. So he's trying to like get her out of the sarcophagus, and then Aww. like their Corny B Vance, whom I love, is yeah. in, he's their commander, and so he comes up, and he's like, "What are you doing?" And he stabs him and kills him on the plane, and then the plane starts crashing because all these birds are crashing into the plane, and. There's only one parachute, and Tom Cruise puts it on Blondie McBlonde face, and she's like, "Oh, you saved my life." I knew you were good, even though we had a one night stand, and I badmouthed you to your to your commanding officer like 20 minutes ago. Look, it's really bad. So the the plane crashes, and Tom Cruise is on it, and he wakes up in a morgue with like a 
body tag on and he's alive without a scratch on him and he's drawn to this place because that's where the mummy is because that's also she is instinctually like she knows where her dagger is because these night like templar knights found it and like hid it away in england <laughs> inside of a reliquary so she smashes up the statue and pulls out the knife she's got an army of zombies at this point yeah she's like uh so she and she's like fully <laughs> corporeal our, our dvd started and, skipping around this point and we we're like what do we miss and i'm like honestly it doesn't, doesn't matter, matter. It doesn't matter so <laughs> she's she's got tom cruise held down and she's gonna kill him because she's his he's his new her new chosen one or whatever. Boy toy. Yeah, so she's going to kill him and, like, bring Seth back, and then she realizes the stone is gone. And so, anyway, so he starts realizing that he's, like, brainwashed by her, and the, the Blondie McBlonde face takes them all into her actual boss, who's not the military, it's Russell Crowe, and he's Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Which, why? <clears throat> so, so, okay, we're, okay, okay, well, but I know, I know exactly... I know exactly why, and we'll talk about it because it's hilarious. But, <laughs> but anyway, but yeah, yeah, he's he's Jekyll, and he turns starts turning Mr. Hyde, and then he stops himself and all this With kind like of stuff. With like a shot. And, anyway, and, so they oh have the they have Mummy Lady there, and she's all chained up, and they're pumping like mercury into her, like embalming her with mercury. So that way her powers will be suppressed and really, she'll like freeze or something. It should really be faster. Like it takes a really long time to pump her full of mercury, which yeah. I don't understand. Yeah. Anyway. So, and, uh, anyway, so then they, Russell Crowe's goons find the stone, and so what they're going to do is they're going to go ahead and stab him with the knife and do the whole ritual and make him set and then kill him so that way, like, the threat is neutralized and, like, evil doesn't come into the world or something. So Russell Crowe's obsessed with the idea of evil. Yeah. Like, controlling yeah. it and all that kind of you stuff. Don't say. Yeah. But surprise, that doesn't work out. Um, <clears throat> and then, I, f- I forget what happens after that, it, to be honest. It doesn't matter. What happens eventually <laughs> is she gets loose and they go, like, they... F- oh, she, she kills finds- She kills Blondie McBlondface. Yeah, she find They find the, the stone, which is, like, in a... In Crypt. a in a crypt that they found while excavating for a new a tunnel, train. a train tunnel. Anyway, they go there. Blondie McBlondface drowns. Tom Cruise has this big dust up with the mummy, and he gets the stone into the knife, and he decides... He's about to smash it. He's about to smash it, and then he realizes, oh, I would be master of death if I become set. So he stabs himself and dies and becomes set and sucks all of her mummy powers out and then shouts at Blondie McBlondface back alive. Kind of like the Hulk did to Iron Man in twenty. Yeah, and when when like, he shouts, he gets like weird teeth, like for a split second, and you're like, oh, he's a monster now, maybe. But and then, then you she, don't see him for the rest of the movie. Yeah, he's like hiding in the shadow of the rest of the movie, and then he runs away, and that's it. But so yeah. Tom Cruise is now the master of death. Yes, yeah. he's set essentially. Like, he's the new mummy. So like, but he's also himself. Oh. But he, yeah, so then you see him, uh-huh. and he brought he brings Jake Johnson back to life, and mm-hmm. they're palling about in the desert again. Yep. So like, look, <laughs> okay. it's look, guys, guys. Nobody went and saw it, and that was the right choice <laughs> because the Universal, as Shannon said, owned the right owns the rights to all these monsters and all this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. so including the, Jekyll and Hyde. And yes, so they wanted yeah. him to be in the universe. So they, were they wanted to, him to be the Nick Fury. Of they the were universe. establishing. Uh, they were establishing a. What they actually put it in the credits. Part of the that universe, guys, though. They put it in. They put Dark Universe in the opening credits of the first movie they were trying to make. Mm-hmm. Like, 
What? They were like, really ambitious. Here, they worked well, out for okay. Marvel. It'll be fine. I, I well, that was out for us. They were trying to establish this dark universe. People have said stuff about this. I don't want to, like... People have said it in 2017 when it came out. It's a bad idea. Like, they... Look, the idea for, like, a monster kind of team is kind of cool. Because, like, you have Justice League and the Avengers who are, like, good guys that have common purpose. They're trying to defeat evil. Mm-hmm. We've seen that. That's cool. So it would have been these, like, monsters. Uh, the Invisible Man, uh, the Creature from the Black Lagoon, uh, Bride of Frankenstein. Like, they had all these guys lined up to, like, be this, like, evil, like, Justice League, evil Avengers <laughs> type of thing. Which mm-hmm. is really interesting. I'm like, how would you kind of corral those people, get them to focus on a common goal. Yeah. I mean, I assume it would be Suicide Squad. There'd just yeah. be some dancing Cara Delevingne, and you have to stop her, I guess. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know. But, like, they they put the cart before the horse, mm-hmm. and they had, like, you walk, like, Tom Cruise is walking through this lab where Russell Crowe is, and there's a Dracula skull. So, like, <laughs> sorry, I say Dracula. A vampire skull. And there's a flipper from the Creature from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> and there was one other thing that I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. But I don't remember what it was. It the book? Was. What? The book? No, that's later. <laughs> there was, but Tom Cruise is walking down, and there's like, I forget what it is. It's like, I don't know. It, it was probably like a werewolf sign or something, wolf man sign or something like that. It was yeah. something dumb. And then, so then, during kind of the dust up inside the Jekyll and Hyde laboratory or whatever, mm-hmm. Blondie McBlondface hits Jafar from the live action Aladdin in the face with the, <laughs> yeah. with the Book of Life from the, from the 1999 From the 1999, money. it's the book. It's the Book of Life. She hits them in the head with it and so, it drops on the floor. There's a whole shot just for it. And we're just like, is this supposed to tie in? So, what the heck? Yeah, dude, I don't, anyway. It does not it's make sense. Dumb and I mean, it but, is an entirely different mummy, so maybe, but. Yeah, well, maybe, yeah, maybe, but also, like, so you're telling me that there was a mummy that, like, came alive. There were several mummies that came alive, like, in the 20s and 30s and 40s that then it was like. Ha, mummies, they can't be real. Ha, 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 ha. Like. <laughs> yeah. Um, I did want to talk really quickly about this movie because it's fascinating that this is the one that they decided to base the Dark Universe off of. Yeah. And I think it's... I actually think that The Mummy could have been a really good movie because it was timed right. So in 2017, um, culturally in the West, we're at this state, we're in the state of awareness where we're like, we're still interfering in the Middle East. We're still like a predominant power over there. It's, we're not colonizing per se, but kind of like as Americans, yeah, kind of, we're like putting in our own governments over there. We're trying to spread democracy and there's this the same sense of anxiety that people felt about colonialism, I think we feel now about the way that we are interfering in cultures and politics in the Middle East. Um, so I think that 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 element of it could have been played up more and was there. Um, but the problem is, is that they decided, for me, the biggest problem is they said it in modern day. So in order to do that, we have different opinions now and just like, Culturally, we don't treat mummies and like artifacts the same way that they did in the 20s. With the same mysticism yeah. and with, same... With the same mysticism. And also, we don't like pillage artifacts from other nations. At least not as much. I mean, um, it still happens. But yeah, they, like, took, they, took, they took it to London. Like They found this yeah. Egyptian mummy in Iraq and took it to Right. Like, and London. so like we live in this age in which museums even debate whether or not it's ethical to display human remains at all. And so in order to justify taking a mummy 
from its resting place. They had to devise this whole story about how, like, oh, well, they decided to bury her in Iraq. And it's in the middle of a war zone. And the, the local primitives there are destroying, like, the culture and the, mm-hmm. like, historical artifacts there. So it's a very similar mentality as what the original, like, the British super thought. Super racist? Yeah, super racist. Like, it's not great. Um, and so, and they do that just to justify like taking the mummy out of its resting place. Um, and then I think the biggest failing of this movie is the fact that it it turned into a justification of Tom Cruise and saying like he's still relevant, he's still sexy and young, which he is not. What, 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 no, 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 no. He's still sexy. No, I cannot say that. He still is. No, uh, no, I'm Hard sorry. Disagree. I'm sorry. Hard he disagree. is. That's did you see, did you see Mission Impossible fall out? Listen, you did. <laughs> Listen, whether or not you find him sexy or not is not the point. They tried to make him, like, he is very clearly in this movie a 50-year-old, something, 50-something-year-old man. It is very obvious. He has wrinkles on his face. Especially next and that's to Jake fine. Johnson. Like, next to Jake Johnson, yes. Yeah. And you know what? That's fine. That character can be that age. That is fine. But they tried to make... The, okay, Shannon. He's fighting Mr. Hyde. And they're, like, fighting. And Mr. Hyde, at one point, says, You're a much younger man than me, but still. And I'm just like, He's not! He's, he's, You're Russell Crowe! He's so crazy! You guys are the same age! I'm pretty sure they're pretty dang close in age. I'm Russell Crowe like, and Tom Cruise. How? You want to try to convince me that Tom Cruise is a much younger man than Russell Crowe? This is not working! He does stunts that a 50-year-old man should not be able to do. (laughs) I don't know. I'm not going to defend Tom Cruise. I do not like Tom Cruise. But, like, let's not say he's a much younger man. (laughs) Yes, not. And, like, and they put him next to Jake Johnson. He's definitely not the same age as Jake Johnson. And they put him next to Jake Johnson (laughs) and, like, this younger woman who's, like, um, really blonde. Oh, and then the mummy. The mummy is very young and she's very beautiful. And Mm. she's, like, it kind of gives off this vibe like she's really sexually interested in Tom Cruise and she chose him and they go through all these hoops to like sexualize her and the fact that she chooses him it's like oh yeah he's more viable yeah but she is technically like, like what? 3,000 years old so it's, it's fine it's more Courtney, of a there are situation. many people that look, still find Tom Cruise extremely look, attractive and that's not that far fetched that is fine you can find him sexually attractive but it treats it, it like goes out of its way to be like he's still young See, looked, he's a young man I just looked at that like he's not. Tom Cruise is actually two years older than Russell Crowe. Thank you. <laughs> um, but but they definitely do not look it in this movie. Like Russell Crowe is definitely like looking older than Tom Cruise. Look, yeah. No, but, that's fair. But I like mean, he's but not like, young. But the people they picked for this dark universe: Johnny Depp, Angelina Jolie, Javier Bardem. The people that they picked for this dark universe. Who are all these people supposed to be? Javier Bardem is supposed to be. Um, is he going to be the, the swamp? I still yeah, he may have been the creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah. Johnny Depp was going to be the Invisible Man. Mm-hmm. And Angelina Jolie was going to be the Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, I'm gonna, you know what, I'm, I'm going to look it up right now. But because like these are very, they're very fine actors. We do need to this up, though. <laughs> look, they're very fine actors. Um... Uh, and they're very talented. And, and Tom Cruise is—they're gonna have to stop Tom Cruise because now he's evil. No, but like he was, but he was, but the whole thing was of? like, "You're still a good man, Tom Cruise." It's like, like it's like he has multiple personalities almost. I don't know. But it like, it's not clear. But they were very talented. But none of them. I mean, I, I feel bad saying this because they're like fifty. I mean, that's not old by any stretch. But mm-hmm. in terms of Hollywood, like they're kind of getting older. So it's like. 
And Tom these, Cruise is starting to show. And it's like they kind of have these actors, like if they wanted to go like really young, they very well could have. There's yeah. plenty of young, very talented actors they could have based this universe around, but they decided yeah. to go with Tom Cruise and Angelina Jolie and Javier Bardem. Yeah. But on, and, and you know what? I don't critic, necessarily criticize that choice in no. terms of their age or anything like that, but stop trying to make Tom Cruise super young. If yeah. You, if, you've, if you've cast Tom Cruise, it's because you want Tom Cruise. You don't want a 30-year-old. Yeah, and that's fine. Like, he can be in his 50s, and that is still a totally viable choice. Choice. But stop telling us, oh, you're a much younger man. He's, when and, he's clearly not. Look, anyway, it, in an, in an ideal world... It really bothered me. In, a, in, an, in an ideal world, the 2008 uh, Mummy with mm-hmm. Brennan Fraser is better. It stays in Egypt, and it's a little bit better. And then in 2012, once people realize that f- film universes can work, then you have Rick and Evie essentially as the Nick Fury of a dark universe because I mm. think I think the idea of a dark universe is intriguing. Yeah. And but you can have like the two of them kind of being the experts and like the bringing in other people and all this kind of stuff, and then you can kind of use that as a launching point. But you keep it in like the fifties. You keep it in antiquity rather than bringing it into the modern day. Yeah, and that's that's the main point with mummies is that like the horror of it has to do with our cultural awareness of colonialism and invading other cultures and that that was a big missing piece in the 2017 version um really quickly because we need to wrap this up but i just wanted to mention a couple other little pop culture things where mummies are uh apart so uh the kane chronicles which is a series by rick riordan ties into the percy jackson series but it deals with mummies and set and a lot of Egyptian Egyptian mythology. mythology yep um, Night at the Museum, the uh, Rami Malek plays a mummy, and that's the whole reason why things in the museum come to life, which is really cool. Uh, Hank Azaria plays his brother. Yep, Hank that's Azaria great. plays his brother. Uh, Hotel Transylvania is like a whole franchise now, but there's a mummy in that. CeeLo. Um, yep. And then the last thing I want to talk about ties into one of our recent episodes. It's Downton Abbey. <laughs> so, uh, Lord Carnarvon, he, his family, they're seat was Highclere Castle, which is where they filmed Downton Abbey. Oh. There's actually a whole uh, Tutankhamun exhibit at Highclere Castle. And apparently, during the filming of Downton Abbey, there are all these spooky occurrences that occurred on site. And Shirley MacLaine was like, there are a lot of like supernatural like elements that here like that are swirling around the set, and so people started speculating that it was like a mummy curse on cool. the Downton Abbey production. So, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm down for a different type <laughs> yeah. of Downton Abbey where there's mummies. Like I'm here for that. That's why the Crawleys had such a hard time. <laughs> yep, it's the mummy curse. Yep. Anyway, I'm that's all I've that. got. Anything else that we want to say? <laughs> no, <laughs> we, we can be done. All right, mummies, they're Live. cool. <laughs> I never, I never settled on the right sound of the that a mummy makes. That's zombies. I mean, it can also be mummies. Yeah, mummies are kind of similar to zombies to me. Like, yeah. the way they move, and that, and that comes from like this the movie sequels after the 1932 version where they kind of dumbed it down. He became like a slumbering kind of menace. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like with the arms outstretched and like the linen right. bandages trailing off of him. Oh, so. there's because I can't let a sequel episode go without the Simpsons reference. <laughs> there is a great there's a Treehouse of Horror where uh, Burn, Mr. Burns is a vampire, mm-hmm. and uh, they're they're saying that like there there's this village where all these peasants had their blood drained, and they found a cape at the scene that says Dracula on the cape. And they say, and Ken Brockman's reporting the news, and he says, police are baffled. They believe that there is a supernatural creature involved, 
and so they have ordered the Egyptian wing of the of the San Francisco, of a of the Springfield Museum destroyed, and they're just like burning all these Egyptian artifacts. I <laughs> think it's a mummy <laughs> instead of like Dracula, who it obviously is. Um, and then at one point they show the police burning the Egypt wing, and then Eddie the cop throws uh, the Mona Lisa into the fire, and he's like, "That's a nice work, Eddie." <laughs> yep. So. Anyway, well, good. I wanted to include that. So that has been mummies. We now you know. <laughs> cool. Well, that's that's gonna be it for us this time. We'll see you guys next time. Bye.